0: What would a Wednesday be without banking lawsuits? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer, and right here next to me is David Hansen. David, there's speculation that Chris Christie will be running for the 2016 presidency after his uh, acceptance speech uh, in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Who is your write-in candidate for 2016? Larry Summers. Larry Summers. Larry Summers, so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I like that I like the Larry Summers
1: hate train that when he was like a fed possibility, and right. it was entertaining. So maybe he'll throw his name in there. But
0: we'll Can see. I go with Janet Yellen then? Oh, yeah,
1: go for it. You're, you're, you have a better shot than me then.
0: Who else could we write in? Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke, yeah. He's got the experience. Go. There He's you go. How about, how about Jamie Dimon? How about Jamie <laughs> Dimon, about Jamie Dimon? <laughs> that that would Dimon
1: for president? Jamie Dimon, Larry
0: Summers on the ticket. 2016. <laughs> well, that's a winning ticket, no <laughs> doubt. All right, going on to the headlines. Our first headline of the day is from Bloomberg. Uh, the headline is Wells Fargo said to face U.S. mortgage bond probe. David, this is another case stemming from uh, Faria claims. This is a uh, this is an old banking regulation from the savings and loan uh, crisis era. What's interesting about this is that Faria has been interpreted in a very broad. Way, uh, And this was used against Bank of America in, in a recent settlement there, and, and it was so broad that, it, that it's essentially said now that if a bank does something, this is designed to protect banks from from fraud that hurts a federally insured institution like a bank. So it's been interpreted now that if a bank does something that hurts itself, that can be the subject of a free claim. This, this is a really powerful tool for prosecutors because number one, the statute of limitations on free claims are ten years mm-hmm. and number two, with a free claim, all that the, the prosecutors need is a preponderance of evidence, which basically means that there's more than a fifty percent chance you look at all the evidence and you come out there 's more than a fifty percent chance that you think that, that this this uh, was a was wrong mm-hmm. as opposed to in a criminal case you 're looking for beyond a reasonable doubt so this is this is a very uh, it's, it's, if you're a prosecutor, you've got to be excited about this.
1: So you're telling me we're going to have to hear about this for another five years since we're only around five years out? I, I, I get it, and I understand why there's the prosecution and why there's the interest in this, because we want to hold someone accountable. But I really don't know the point. I don't think this is going to discourage future behavior. It's not really penalizing anyone who maybe would have done wrong before the crisis. And in terms of bank CEOs or bank leaders, a lot of them have moved on. Or been fired. I really don't see the point of this. I don't think it's Angelo gonna Angelo
0: Mozilla somewhere playing golf. I
1: don't think it's gonna I don't think it's hurt. gonna really hurt banks going forward. It's kind of just a, a dark cloud hanging over them, but I don't know. I don't. I don't really see the point.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's hurting the shareholders of today, many of whom are not the same. I mean, look at the holding periods for stocks. It's almost guaranteed that most of the shareholders of the banks today are not the shareholders of then. Management teams almost uh, almost to a one are not the same management teams. Look at Bank of America. Look at Citigroup. Uh, it, everything's turned over. I, even Wells Fargo. I mean, Wells Fargo didn't have as much problem, but they've they've even got different leadership. I don't know, but look. If you're a prosecutor, a, a, a government prosecutor that's got their eyes on higher uh, public office, hey, you got to be excited here.
1: I know. All right, moving on to the next headline from The Wall Street Journal. Regions Financial discloses government subpoena over mortgage practices. So this is different than the Faria or however you pronounce it. One of these it. days we'll get a chance to talk about bank businesses. Hopefully. Right? I mean, these are the headlines that, that we have to deal with. So now, uh, the HUD is investigating... Uh, I guess you could call it investigating, mortgage practices over at Regions related to mortgages that the FHA insured. We saw the FHA bailout, so this is probably the next thing in line that they're going to say, well, we needed a bailout, but now we're going to go find out who is really responsible, and they're going to lean on the banks. But we have to remember, the, it's probably not going to be a huge deal for the banks.
0: The FHA is not enormous in the housing market maybe so what but what this what this headline says to me is uh, owners of smaller banks i think can't look at the wells the wells fargo headline from today can't look at the at the big settlements that bank of america has paid out the 13 billion dollars that j p morgan may be paying out and breathe a sigh of relief and say boy we we mm-hmm. missed out on all that they can't particularly with with these free claims uh, I, I think The time is coming when prosecutors are going to start looking at some of the smaller banks, and it's almost guaranteed that some of the same actions that brought down the the law on the bigger banks, they're going to find it, some of the smaller banks.
1: I don't think this is the main story for regions financial shareholders. Oh, no. I don't I, I don't think I think they should be more focused on the business. Net interest margin continues to expand at region as they get off some of those deposits that were, they were paying a lot of interest on as those continue to roll off, credit quality improves. That's what you should care about at regions, not this lawsuit. Sure, but
0: but, but I think shareholders, ignore it. shareholders should gird themselves in in, in any case uh, with the expectations that maybe they'll see some more of these headlines. Yep. All right, third headline. We've got press release. This is from Two Harbors. Two Harbors Investment Corp reports third quarter 2013 financial results. Exciting should headline. Mention, I should, yeah, it's a great <laughs> headline. I should mention that just yesterday on the show, we promised that we would talk a little bit less about the mortgage REITs mm-hmm. uh, in response to a, a comment from, from one of our uh, listeners. And that is true. We will do that. However, Two Harbors, near and dear to my heart, one of my favorite. Probably, no, 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 no. My favorite mortgage REITs. So couldn't overlook this. It is a challenging environment for the mortgage REITs. Uh, it's been a lackluster total return for Two Harbor shareholders year-to-date, 6.3% total return. Uh, that's against 20 uh, 24% return for the S&P 500, so, so you've kind of lagged there. And this is something that... Uh, Years ago, like before, when a lot of people were going to the mortgage rates for the big dividends, this is something that I was looking, looking ahead to, saying, look, when the interest rate environment starts to change a little bit, you're going to see a different uh, – you're, you're not going to see the easy gains for the mortgage rates. And we're kind of in that now. But I think now, in particular, as we get deeper into this, this is the time when you start to get a little choosy, start to start to look at the mortgage mm-hmm. rates. Um, the company continues to make progress on initiatives outside of mortgage-backed securities. So they're, they're buying a lot of uh, mortgage servicing rights, um, which gives them nice di- diversification. Uh, they're they're getting into this into securitizations. Now it's not a big business for them yet, but again, that's another way for them to diversify, become a broader business. company's still being defensive. Uh, they're buying back stock, which is an interesting move given that the stock is selling at a discount to tangible book value. And here's an interesting. Comment: An interesting line from the uh, from the the call after the earnings release it said, "So agencies today, as we've said, are not that interesting." Referring to agency mortgage-backed mm-hmm. securities. So that's that's kind of investors in Annalee Capital and American Capital Agency that shouldn't be news to them. But that's just another. Uh, Another person saying, basically, right now, agency mortgage-backed securities is not a great place to be.
1: The one thing I'll say on Two Harbors is you mentioned the mortgage servicing rights. I think this is really interesting. They just entered into agreement with PHH Mortgage Corporation. Mm-hmm. Most people probably haven't heard of PHH. But when we talk about mortgage servicing rights, Two Harbors, they're not the ones that are going to go out and actually be servicing uh, the, the loans here. They're not doing that. That's but a- they entered into agreement to, to buy these servicing rights from PHH. PHH will still be the servicer, so they're still going to be the subservicer on here, but uh, Two Harbors gets to hold those mortgage servicing rights on their books. And the reason they want to do that is mortgage servicing rights go up as interest rates go up. So they're kind of using this as a natural hedge rather than going out and buying derivatives. Right. They're using this as their hedge. So an interesting move here.
0: All right. Uh, heading on to some more headlines, rapid fire style. Why don't you give us the first one?
1: So we mentioned the whole Zillow earnings and how we, as the Motley Fool, partnered with Zillow yesterday to do an interview with Spencer Rascoff. That's up on Fool.com right now. So they did report earnings. The earnings looked pretty good. I think the stock's down today, but it's a growth stock. It's going to have up and down. De- it started up, up four percent, down four uh, percent. Just some quick takeaways from the quarter: marketplace revenue. So those are the real estate agents paying subscriptions. That revenue was up seventy-three percent. Up to 64 million unique monthly users, so people actually coming to Zillow. 64 million, that's a lot of people. They are by far the biggest in the space. They said, said more than twice the size of their nearest competitor. So even though the stock's down, business continues to do well. I still like the
0: business. Let, let me comment. Let me comment there really quickly. The, the the real estate agents that are paying Zillow that's in the thousands, right? That's mm-hmm. that's that's tens of thousands. We we had said on the show previously. Right. I, we mistakenly <laughs> said that there were. Tens we said millions. Of millions. <laughs> and, and, and I had actually I remember commenting. That's a lot of real estate agents. That is way more than they right. It's have. around forty
1: four thousand right. uh, paying real estate agents,
0: which is still. A yes, yes. That is, that is a lot of customers. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of paying customers. A lot of unique users, as you said, which yep. is also good. Now, you, you caught me off guard, so I had to, I had to come up with a rapid-fire headline <laughs> in rapid-fire style. So I've got, Bill de Blasio wins New York City mayoral race in landslide. Why is this important? It's because we talk about financial companies, and New York uh, is the U.S. hub for big banking, financials, investment banks. This this is a a pretty big political change for New York. This is the first Democratic mayor in two decades, and there there are a lot of concerns. It'll, it remains to be seen how much of it is bluster versus how much of it is reality. But um, in terms of of attracting employees to these big financial companies, uh, New York has to remain a, an attractive place to. Frankly, it has to remain an attractive place to be a wealthy person, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> let me just say. And, and if, if something changes that, then maybe that changes some of the dynamics of the, the, the ability of some of the financial companies there to hire. I, I don't know how much of that is reality, but mm-hmm. that's the headline. That's the news. That's what people are saying. There we go. All right. Moving on to the focus for today. We're cheating just slightly in that we're focusing on an email that we got. And the email is from a reader named Zach. Zach. And Zach says, really enjoy your show and appreciate the humor you add to it. I noticed you didn't put that up on the slide. but I that's it down. That's important. That's the most important part. <laughs> uh, I would be interested in hearing your take on what the perfect financial company would be. Maybe a breakdown of financial stats, market share, moat, et cetera, that would make up a company that would be too irresistible to pass. Maybe the opposite of investing chicken. I great like that. question. That is a great question. Do you want me to start? Or you? Go for it, yeah. Okay, I will start. Uh, I'm going to kind of take this. Almost the exact opposite of the list that, that Zach had. So number one, I'm looking for a competitive advantage. I'm looking for some, s- s- something that the company has, at least one thing, maybe multiple aspects of the company, that gives it staying power, that gives me confidence that five years from now, this is still a company that's going to be protected from competition. And in, in terms of being protected co- from competition, it's what Zach mentioned, it's the moat. Because, essentially, if you're doing something that's undifferentiated from everybody else and you're earning good returns, lots of other people can come and do the same thing. And before you know it, those good returns are average returns or below average ter- mm-hmm. returns or whatever. So the more moat you have, the more competitive advantage you have, the more you can have above average returns over time.
1: And I'll, I'll, I'll jump in at each of your points. Oh, sure. If, if that's how we're going to yeah, do it. it and I, think, I, I, I guess we are. We, we can think about some industries uh, where there are – physical moats and regulatory modes, And we do have that in the financial sector mm-hmm. to some extent. But I think a big part of competitive advantage is brand, too, in, in sure. the financial yeah, space. Yeah. So if you think about Bank of America, what's their competitive advantage? A lot of it is that brand and that nationwide some network. people would there. say that that's an anti-competitive <laughs> Maybe. Right? But, but anywhere people know the brand of Bank of America, and that's very hard to, to attack from a competitive standpoint.
0: Okay. Uh, well, and, and scale there actually yep. is another. When we, when we think about the big four banks, even, even if you, if you want to snipe and say, hey, these brands stink right now, um, scale is still really significant. Because if, if I'm a Bank of America, say I'm a Bank of America retail customer, I can potentially find Bank of America uh, ATMs all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that's, and that's advantageous if I'm a retail customer that's traveling around. Number two I'm looking for leadership that is honest and forthright. I want a leadership team that, A, I can trust. That's really important, obviously. But I also want a leadership team that appears and remains dedicated to explaining the business to shareholders, making sure shareholders know what is going on in the business and, and really understand that. Um, I would say an anti-example of that is Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, there's there's a lot to like about that business, but in terms of being transparent in terms of what exactly they are doing and what's happening at the business that shareholders need to know about, you just you look at those results and it's just mm-hmm. like, well, they're making a lot of money, right? And, and you got to be happy with that. Um, what's a counter to that? What's a, a counter, counter to this? that, and, and this will this is a company that I'll mention later at the end of this. But Markel. Uh, the the folks at Markel, particularly Tom Gaynor, who who does a lot of the um, a lot of the, the talking uh, seem to be very clear, always seem to be very clear about what's going on at the business, what their goals are, what they're trying to do, and, and seem to want shareholders to really understand Mark Hell inside and out. Um, also along with insur- uh, not insurance, uh, leadership so I'd like to see a leadership team that's willing to zig when others are zagging for lack of a better way to put that. I know that's a little cliche. But uh, we're talking about the f- finance industry here, right? And so, taking financial risks when everybody else is taking financial risks is a recipe for disaster. We saw that in the financial crisis, uh, and, and we see that in the insurance industry all the time. When when insurance rates aren't right and everybody is chasing after them, uh, when a, when a catastrophe hits, when there's a particularly bad year, I'm, I guess I'm talking mainly about property mm-hmm. and casualty and ca- catastrophe insurance here. But uh, but that leads to a lot of losses. And once again, we can refer to Markel here. Markel, uh, as an insurer, they are very clear about the idea that when rates aren't right, they won't write the insurance.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably, on, on my list, the most important. A, a company, a management team that knows how to price risk, and when the price isn't there, to step back. Because everything else is going to come with it. Because if you price the risk correctly, then you're going to get the returns that you should. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't, and you follow the herd mentality that, that you talked about, it is a recipe for disaster. So if you have, find a company that has a track record of doing that, that's really the best, really the best measurement in terms of, okay, what are they going to do going forward? Have they shown that in the past that they can mm-hmm. do that? If they haven't, and they're saying that, okay, now going forward we're going really, to be really sensitive and we're going to zig when other oh, people zag. If they haven't done that in the past, I don't see a reason why they would do right. it in the future. But if you look at a company like Markel,
0: you just look, look, at the, look at the underwriting results. Yeah. It's, it's, it's right there in black and white. And you can see that obviously they are only taking risks that they know that they can be profitable on. Yep. Uh, the third point that I have here is is a keen focus on capital allocation. This applies very much to the financial industry, but this applies across all companies. Uh, a company makes business, uh, makes, makes money in its <laughs> core business. Caveman. <laughs> <Right>? Caveman. <laughs> <laughs> company make business. <laughs> So a company makes money in its core business, and then it's got to figure out what to do with that money. Maybe it can reinvest that in the core business if it can get adequate returns on it. Maybe it can make an acquisition if, if there's a good opportunity to be had. Uh, maybe share buybacks are, are a good thing to do. Uh, maybe dividends, maybe paying out dividends. Are, but the, the the bottom line is is that a management team has to be focused on what is the best place for this money, not just letting it sit around, not just saying, well, I'm going to make an acquisition because that will make me bigger, or I'm going to invest more in the business because I don't know what else to do. Like mm-hmm. I, I have a one-track mind. So finding the best sort uh, the best place to put capital is very very important and in terms of long-term results for shareholders. Uh, it's extremely important. And, and kind of along the lines of what I just said in terms of knowing
1: when to step out of a market, you can go back and look at past results, when have they done buybacks, when have they made, made acquisitions, what are the prices they've paid? You can past past results are not indicative of future returns, but they can Boom. give you they can give you a pretty so good idea be a lawyer. Of, of where the management's thought has been in the past. And personally, I think that's a pretty good place to start in terms of what do you think the next five, ten years look like.
0: Uh, finally, stats-wise, uh, Zach was asking what the, what the statistics, what the returns would look like, that sort of thing. You know, I, I think if If you find a company with all of those elements that I've named that that we've talked about so far, the stats will take care of themselves. The ratios will take care of themselves. But for a financial company in particular, I think looking at the return of equity, uh, return on equity is a a great place to look. I would say uh, looking at the growth in uh, tangible book value per share over time uh, is a good place to look uh, in terms of, of having a quick tell. Yep. On, on whether these things are happening. Financial companies that I think fit the bill of this perfect company. Markel, we already talked about. Berkshire Hathaway, not a big surprise there. Two harbors. The more I follow this company, the more I love this management team. Uh, I think they fit the bill. Aflac is a maybe. Affleck, a couple maybe companies. Aflac is a maybe. Huntington Bank shares I like a lot uh, in that maybe category. And I think Blackstone, surprisingly enough.
1: There you go. May, may fit these. Well, if anybody else listening or watching finds a company, let us know. Perfect.
0: We, we, yeah. <laughs> Email us, uh, WTMI at fool.com, perfect financial companies. Yes.
1: All right. Moving on to the official. The official mailbag. The official mailbag segment. Um, there's a nice little look. There it is. Uh, we got a question from David from england it's a nice name there david and it was a longer email but we've cut it down and this was his question essentially says i've been hankering after the big u.s financials and have found this recently launched financial investment trust by polar capital that's a uk firm Uh, he says i would be pleased if you guys could pass on your thoughts as they relate to a low-cost way for me to gain exposure to u.s financials and again that's david david from prepare to be pleased Okay. Me, David, or that David? That
0: David. He said I would be pleased. And okay. Yeah, and so we're about to do it. So he's going to be hopefully pleased.
1: So so the first thing off the bat when you're talking about a fund, an ETF, you want to look at the expenses. Mm-hmm. Because you don't. It can be a great fund, but if you're paying out the wazoo for it, it's probably going to eat into your turns pretty significantly. Yep. Uh, I took a look at this one, and it is at a 0.85% annual expense ratio there. So not huge, Mm-hmm. But certainly not in, in the Vanguard world right. of very, very, very low fund or uh, fees there.
0: Although so I think be, it's a reasonable. To, fee. To, to be fair, one of the things I will say is that when you have such a diversified, a globally diversified mm-hmm. uh, ETF like this, it is an ETF, right? Right. Yeah, it is an ETF. Uh, when you have such a globally diversified fund like this, mm-hmm. expenses tend to be higher, just right. because trading fees are higher and that sort of thing.
1: And and that's that's the next thing I'd point out. It's he says he wants exposure to US financials and at first glance i don't know if this is the best option if you're looking for united states financial companies if we look at the geographical breakdown only 26% of the companies are north american companies 25% in europe around 15% in asia ex-japan uh 8% eastern
0: europe so this is more of a global financials etf so and not not fair, a bad thing. To be fair, twenty six percent in North America does not even necessarily mean that that's all U.S. because you've got those big Canadian right. banks as and, well. Right,
1: and there was—I don't—I don't have the the holdings written down, but I think there was a Canadian bank. Toronto top Dominion, two point one percent. So there you funds. go. The, the top four holdings are all U.S. banks, and I think mm-hmm. that makes up around ten percent of the holdings. It's, it's mm-hmm. PNC, mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan, UBS, UBS. There we not go. U.S. Oh, nice there try. We go. Close. Close. Um, Oh, you were the, thinking the USB, top one. weren't you? I was, but the the top ones
0: are U.S., but they're not a huge portion. PNC, PNC top holding in the fund, good holding. J.P. Morgan, good holding. Uh, Wells Fargo is the number four, good mm-hmm. holding. Um, sorry, I, I can't I can't help but but look down this. Citigroup's up there in the top fifteen. <laughs> of course, I like Citigroup. Go ahead, finish. Mm-hmm. Sorry.
1: So, so if you if you are looking for U.S financial exposure. I don't know if this is the best option. It could be a great option just for the financial sector in general. But I mentioned Vanguard earlier, and they're just, their Vanguard financials ETF. It has an expense ratio of 0.19%. So... Ticker symbol on that?
0: I actually don't have it written down.
1: Okay. But you can Google it. That's what Google own. I actually own that own So there that you go. And that's, ETF, that, that, is, that is much more tilted for, for U.S. financials. The Vanguard Financials ETF. I think I think the top five holdings are the big four U.S. banks, and number five I think is Berkshire Hathaway. AIG is uh, actually in there, too. So there you go. So you're getting much more U.S.-based uh, exposure there. So
0: maybe that's an Quick question there. for you here. PNC, number one holding of this globally diversified fund, does that surprise you? It does surprise me, especially considering that's a, a super regional bank. But I like
1: the business you mentioned. You like it as well. I'm a shareholder. I really like what PNC is doing. So maybe, maybe that puts another little feather in the hat over there at Polar Capital that, that they agree with me. So <laughs> yeah. I'm
0: liking what the That's, Polar Capital people are. I don't, are I don't know about. how good of an idea that is. Uh, <laughs> J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, both among the top five holdings here. Citigroup also among the top 15. However, in the top 15 that I'm looking at here, no Bank of America.
1: Very interesting. Big oversight?
0: Maybe not. Uh, I don't know. They they may have their reasons.
1: There, there are, it's an interesting one to look at. If, if anyone' just easy answer, in this easy one. answer, big oversight.
0: <laughs> Let's move on to the game for today, All right. which is rankings, uh, and we are ranking insurance companies today. Yes, we are. It's the entire insurance industry. So you can go across life and health, uh, property and casualty, reinsurance, if you want. You could even go into health insurance if you so choose. David, what are your rankings?
1: All right, my rankings are. Number one off the board, we just talked about them. Markel, and I'll run through them all, all five real quick. I went Markel, AIG, Berkshire Hathaway, Progressive Insurance, and Aflac is number five. Uh, so Markel, I don't want to completely rehash the investment We've, been, we've here. been
0: sadly doing this together for too I long. Maybe a little bit of groupthink. I, I have a <laughs> feeling
1: your rankings will look similar. Uh, but Markel, I think it's cheap. I think you have a good management team. They write good insurance. It's an easy number one for me. What are your rankings?
0: Let's see Read them <laughs> off. Markel, AIG, Berkshire Hathaway, Aflac, and then Travelers. So we well, got. Our basement's different. Yeah, a little bit switching it up a little bit in four and five there. Um, I, I won't. Well, I won't rehash your thoughts on Markel, but but Markel, uh, did you did you say what it's trading at? One point six not. times tangible book value, which is a, a pretty. Pretty good multiple, I think, if we consider since 2003, Markel has grown book, tangible book value by, per share by 223%. And one thing that, I, that I'll point out on Markel is that return on equity, I just mentioned before, return on equity is a good stat to look at for financial companies. Return on equity doesn't look great for Markel, but one of the key pieces to the Markel puzzle is the investing portfolio. And a lot of the investment portfolio is in equities that are, that are going up over time but mm-hmm. showing up in unrealized gains. Right. And so not showing not up in funded. the net income. Right. So, so when you start to consider the contribution from that part of the, the business, uh, the return on equity is much better. Kind of like your number three, Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, a lot like my number three. Here, here's an interesting stat. For those who, are compl- who, who might want to think that Warren Buffett is losing it. <laughs> People say that, right? Okay. Since 2007, so this is starting right before the financial crisis and going through the financial crisis. Since 2007, Berkshire Hathaway's tangible book value per share has grown by about 8%, oh, more than 8% per year. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Mm-hmm. The size of Berkshire Hathaway, the fin- going through the financial crisis, you're still getting 8% per year. Impressive. And, and when you think about the, that we're talking about these trading on a tangible book value multiple, that's very important. All right. Um, a- AIG? AIG. No, tell me about AIG. AIG. Uh, they're an insurer?
1: They are an insurer. Uh, com- compared to, to Markel and Berkshire Hathaway, you don't have the long history of great underwriting. Obviously, <laughs> we saw the debacle no, not quite. of the financial crisis. But on the flip side, you kind of have the, the cheapness and the recovery of them turning into a good underwriter. So it's not as, quote, unquote, guaranteed that they're going to write good insurance. But I think they have the right culture there. They're making the right steps. They've implemented the dividend. They're buying back shares. I think
0: AIG looks good. A little bit of a setback during earnings when they said that they might not achieve their 2000, 2015 goals by 2015. Uh, Affleck and Traveler's rounding out my list. I just think they're both great insurers. I'd like to go into more detail, but we're running short on time. So let's go to the sphere. All right. Oh, wait, did you have anything else to say? No, I never have anything to say. No, you don't. You, <laughs> never, you never do. All
1: right. Going, Twittersphere. Going things. to the first tweet ever. This is from, from Sam Rowe. At by Sam Rowe. he says, All you idiots are using CAPE wrong. So, And then he links out to an article there talking about the CAPE ratio. Matt, give us a 10-second explanation of what the CAPE ratio is.
0: 10, ten seconds? I can't even start in 10 All right, 15 seconds. seconds, go. CAPE is cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio. This is an average of 10-year earnings for the S&P 500. Price over average 10-year earnings. It's supposed to give a business cycle. So it's a PE multiple. ratio, but the earnings are an average of 10 years. There, you go. there we
1: go. Uh, so why are we using it wrong? What, what's this article claiming that we're doing here?
0: Well, a, a lot of people are looking at it today and saying the CAPE looks high and so you should sell stocks. Mm-hmm. And, and Robert Schiller himself, who, who maintains the CAPE ratio, uh, he, has a whole, he has a whole spreadsheet that you can download on IrrationalExuberance.com. He has said this is not a timing tool. It's, it, it can help project... Future returns when CAPE is high, future returns tend to be lower. When CAPE is low, future returns tend to be higher. But it's not a timing tool. You don't buy when CAPE is low, and then all of a sudden stocks are going to go up. You don't sell when CAPE is high because stocks are going to crash. Mm-hmm. Stocks do what they do. Mr. Market is unpredictable. Um, so stop. Stop doing that. Idiots. Idiots. Idiots out there. All right, second I, I tweet. like how direct Sam is. <laughs> second tweet. Marine Farrell, at marine, at marine M. Farrell is the Twitter handle. Brian Moynihan says JP Morgan, other banks, not role models for settling litigation, quote, no one is more educated about these cases, unfortunately, than Bank of America. He's right. He's
1: got a yeah, lot they, of practice. They know they know their way around the courtroom. And Brian does as well, a former general counsel, I think only for a month of the bank, but he was yeah. a lawyer in his in his prior life before Fleet Boston. Uh, they do know their way around the courtroom. I think they've paid out what he's
0: over, basically saying that Jamie's doing it wrong. And
1: now, there he is. We got a picture of him. There he what is. is. Good looking guy. Um, Look at that hair. Uh, so, so I think good good they've good paid out hair what hair over so forty hair. billion in litigation since the crisis. That's a lot of money, but they've still built capital over yeah. that time, and that's pretty darn impressive. They've done that through earnings, but also through shedding assets that don't make sense. I think he also said in that Wall Street Journal interview that the bank is around a third of the size it was in two thousand eight. So they've really shrunk the bank. They've built capital. Even though they've had to pay out a lot, I think he has the bank on solid footing.
0: But, but the headline here,
1: he thinks Jamie's doing it wrong. There we go. All right, third tweet. Third tweet of the day. This is from Catherine Rampell. She says, what is that word? Okay, I'll try to pronounce this. Sun, sundoku, and that's a noun. And it stands for buying. That's, there's, a, there's a silent T. For our
0: listeners, there's a silent T
1: at the beginning. That's why it's so difficult for me to say. Uh, the definition is buying books and not reading them,
0: letting books pile up. Do you do this? I I I don't actually. Uh well, yeah, I kind of do. I, I have a I have a little I have a small pile of books at the side of my bed. I think right on top now is a book called The Source by um uh James Mishner. It's about South Africa, the, the long epic history of South, it South Africa. That sounds exciting. It, it, it's a it's okay. I've got one. I've got a You've got just one? You don't have a pile of books?
1: Well, one that's been looking at me. He's like, why aren't you reading me? <laughs> uh, the biography of Hugh McCall, the guy who kind of built Bank of America into the behemoth that it is today. Hey, Where did you find that? Uh, so, yeah, I've got the, the Hugh McCall biography. It's been sitting there looking at me. Just haven't
0: cracked it open yet. That sounds, that sounds like a good one. We'll see. Like I'll that. let you know if I ever read it. All right. For for uh, viewers, for listeners, our Twitter Uh, handle is at TMF financials Mm -hmm. our email address is WTMI at fool.com they can reach us there it is right on the screen but if you're listening you can't see that for those watching who would like to listen during their commute we are on iTunes I should point that out and I will also point out that for those who would love to hear about Warren Buffett and some of his very best wisdom ever they can email warren at fool.com and get a special report we have on Warren Buffett and his greatest wisdom just send an email to warren at fool.com you get that free report right sent to you. Free is good. Free is good. Free is excellent. <laughs> well, that's our show for today, folks. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We, for better or worse, will be back tomorrow.